Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there. Welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode is Michael Matley and Rory Karen from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about the implications of Tesla's latest delivery beat, the collapse of Zoom's latest acquisition of Five9, and the things we like and the things we don't about the newly IPO'd hair care company Olapex. So guys, it's kind of hard to start off this podcast without mentioning Facebook. They've been having a lot of pretty bad press recently, but just days after a former company product manager turned whistleblower testified in front of Congress, all Facebook services, including its native app, Instagram and WhatsApp, suddenly went down for what was surely its longest outage ever. I think it lasted about six hours in total. The company blamed this issue on a faulty configuration change. But Mike, as a resident conspiracy theorist here at my Wall Street, I'd be interested to hear your take on this story. Oh, tinfoil hat, firmly fastened. But uh, it's, a classic, <laughs> it's a classic bait and switch, James, you know. It was, it was the day of the whistleblower's interview, no? On 60 Minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, think, like, I think it was just after, yeah. Yeah, so they obviously se- severely limited like the distribution of that interview. And then when they're back up, like that's not even the biggest Facebook story in the news that week, you know? Yeah, Rory, a, a few episodes ago, we talked about this Facebook strategy of only putting good news stories on Facebook feeds. Is this a case of no news is good news? Well, first of all, hold on. When did Emmett lose title of chief conspiracy theorist in this business? <laughs> uh, when, when Mike walked through the door and started, okay. uh, I, I actually won't even get into on public record some of the conspiracy theories I've heard out of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, they didn't need to shut down Facebook because they could just decide they're not going to show anyone it. That's their yeah. whole new thing. They're like, they give out to the media for only publishing bad news stories about them. And then they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're only going to publish good news stories about us. So there yeah. <laughs> do with that media i think i think they should put in zuckerberg as a new bonville yeah he'd be it would well, fit in so well well by what I've, I've heard of the the reviews of the latest bonville and i think he'd be better than remy malik but uh, yeah. I, I won't i won't spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it so let's move on then to some more real stories so there was good news for tesla this week after the company revealed that it had smashed delivery expectations for the third quarter the company managed to deliver just over 241,000 cars in the quarter past, beating analysts' predictions of close to 221,000. This also marked a 73% increase year-on-year year and a 20% jump quarter-on-quarter. Quarter. Anyone that's followed Tesla over the past couple of years will know that, historically, one of the company's biggest problems has been scaling up its production delivery capabilities. Mike, with such strong delivery numbers reported, can we say that Tesla is finally emerging as an automaker capable of consistent production and delivery? Yeah, well, first of all, like, are we allowed to talk about Tesla when Emmett's not here? Because <laughs> <laughs> I might get fired for talking too much about them. Um, but no, yeah, look, it was a huge quarter. And it was it was a record quarter and its fifth record, record quarter in the row as well. Yeah. So what makes it all the more impressive, I think, is that it's done this in the face of like mounting challenges for the industry with the semiconductor shortage. And like you've seen... GM and Ford have suffered greatly and Tesla is producing record quarter number five in a row. 
it's actually kind of funny. I read the press release where it announced its uh, delivery numbers and it said, we would like to thank our customers for their patience as we work through global supply chain and logistics challenges. Like while everyone else is struggling, we post these numbers and then apologize. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like an Irish mammy apologizing for the house being messy after she's been cleaning it for the last three hours. It's like really humble brag. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, so like, as we've mentioned, like Tesla's problem consistently has been the delivery numbers. And I remember a few years ago, the temporary production facilities they set up, all of those crazy stories about Elon Musk sleeping in the office and all of this. How important has been the opening of new factories in China and the planned new factories in Texas and Berlin? How important is that to the overall story of Tesla and, you know, maybe the, the company actually catching up to its share price sometime soon? Yeah, well, I think we can speculate that like the big advantage Tesla has is that in this current constrained supply chain environment, it's got its plant in Shanghai and like it's the only one to have that. You know, yeah. is that the big advantage it has over its competitors? We've discussed already on this pod the issues it was having with regulators and the public over there, but like results like these kind of show that it was absolutely a shrewd move by Musk, you know. Um it'll be interesting to see now when they publish all the the full financial results if Chinese demand kind of rebounded because we saw a bit of a lull recently. I remember yeah. I think it was overtaken for the first time by uh, by local competitors out there. But I think in general, these numbers speak to the global demand for electric vehicles that's out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there earlier about semiconductors, which is I think is the it's the buzzword kind of you're talking about the auto industry at the moment. When these numbers for Tesla came out, Kathy Wood of Ark Invest, who's a notorious Tesla bull, made a comparison between Tesla's impressive delivery numbers and GM's, who actually experienced a 33% decline in sales over the same period. She also pointed out that EV cars need three to five times more semiconductors. Now, I'm going to take her word for that because I don't know. But do you think that's a fair comparison to make between Tesla's increase in deliveries and sales and GM's decrease? Yeah, well, like, come on, she owns two billion of Tesla stock. Of course, she's going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fair. (laughs) It is is completely fair because of not so much what Tesla's doing, but what GM and Ford are doing. You know, they're portraying themselves as these, we're going to come in and take over the electric vehicle industry. Yeah. Um, I think... GM said recently that they're planning on doubling revenue by 2030 with the transition to like basically all electric vehicles. So when they're saying that, of course, they have to be compared to Tesla because Tesla is the leading name in this space. And when we look at like these recent results, you kind of see why Tesla is the leading name in this space, you know? But but like I suppose the point then um, I I think a lot of people leveled against Cathy Wood was that well Tesla's overall delivery numbers are are a fraction of the amount of cars that the likes of GM and Ford produce. Yeah, but they're a fraction of the petrol and diesel cars Ford and GM are producing. In terms yeah. of changing to an electrified uh, production line, Tesla still miles ahead. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And then if we talk about the, the industry wider, then we often talk about the power of first mover advantage here at My Wall Street. And as you mentioned, with such a global shift in the past few years towards EVs and many industry giants getting into the games, many governments putting in EV targets, um, surely this competitive edge for Tesla will start to fade over time. Yes and no. I, I think like when you look at, so we're talking about Ford and GM and like the money they have dedicated to shifting their focus over the next decade, like Tesla's mover, first mover advantage is quite obvious there, you know? Pretty much everyone is playing catch-up while Tesla can iterate on its already proven production model. 
Yeah. This is why like Tesla's battery range is streets ahead. It's got its charging network. Like these are huge advantages to Tesla drivers rather than if you got a GM electric vehicle, you know? Yeah. And then there's like the added competition. Of course, like the added competition and pricing power is going to erode Tesla's first mover advantage, but it won't be like just because it won't be able to enjoy the market share it once had, it's still going to have a significant piece of a bigger market. And I think like the key for Tesla moving forward is going to try to emulate the iPhone. You know, the iPhone was kind of the first mover advantage in the smartphone era. But then obviously all the new competitors came in, but Apple were managed to kind of maintain that advantage with all the like ancillary benefits, you know, the App Store, AirPods, iMessage and all that kind of like almost status symbol. Tesla can kind of recreate that with like autopilot with its supercharger network. Those are kind of the 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 way I think it's going to try to craft its strategy going forward, I think. It's something along those lines. So like the Tesla ecosystem. Almost, yeah. Yeah. Rory, what are your thoughts? I think, you know, a lot sometimes when we talk about first mover advantage, I remember one of the great ones was um, Netflix's great first mover advantage. It was just inept competition. Yeah. Uh, it was like everyone could see what they were doing, but just no one bothered to, you know, figure out that they should be doing it too. Um, and in, in Tesla, I think we kind of had that for a bit. Obviously, there was other companies making electric cars but tesla was really the ones that was like making the electric car sexy yeah and that's still what they're doing today and i mean like look there are going to be competitors coming in and this is where the test for tesla is going to be is like how much is that sexiness worth and you know from a stock price perspective <laughs> uh hard to quantify yeah sometimes, what, what's but. the ratio of, of sexiness per <laughs> share price yeah yeah what's your what's your sexy to revenue ratio um <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think that's where the big question lies now with Tesla going forward is like, at what point do people start kind of valuing it more as a business that's competing with other businesses doing a similar thing and not just as a, wow, this is a very, very sexy product. I can't move away from this Tesla story without asking probably the most important question about Tesla, which, is, which has come up for the past few weeks. So with Elon Musk and Grimes having broken up in that famous picture of Grimes uh, <laughs> walking through Los Angeles with a, a Karl Marx book. Rory, does this mean that we might actually start getting some good music from Grimes again soon? Oh, here's hoping. Here's hoping. <laughs> Cross my fingers. <laughs> Oh, it's hard to like a company like Tesla sometimes. Um, let's move on then. And so a few weeks in this pod, we spoke about Zoom's planned acquisition of the cloud call center f- company Five9. Well, last week, that deal went kaput with Five9 shareholders rejecting the deal because they felt it did not appropriately value the company. Rory, I got the feeling that the analyst team here were a little split over this deal when we talked about it first. What's your initial thoughts on it falling through? Yeah, so the deal with Five9 it was one of those deals that made perfect sense, but in a really unexciting way. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people wrongly think of Zoom as what we're, as just what we're doing right now, which is just on a Zoom call. Yeah. You know, Zoom has much greater ambitions than that. They are looking to create kind of frictionless communication throughout the world. And the one place that that really is an issue is call centers. Now, call centers are not particularly sexy industries. God, I'm really on the yeah. side. Uh, they're not a particularly sexy industry. I think, yeah, at least in the zeitgeist, they're kind of always betrayed as quite depressing spaces, this kind of Sisyphean existence. Now, like I said, it, it like it did make sense. It would have diversified their product line. It would have created cross-selling opportunities. It would have created kind of strong switching costs. But shareholders weren't particularly pumped 
by the idea now that the deal's fallen through it's kind of like your friend is dating someone that none of the other friend group like you know and the relationship ends and you sort of have to pretend you feel sorry for it about it while kind of secretly being absolutely delighted you know you're all like oh that's terrible while you're all looking over each other and like great finally that's great <laughs> stuff yeah now incidentally back in september zoom announced their video engagement center, which is set to launch in 2022, which I don't know, for me sounded very like the start of their own contact center solution. And I think that they may have just saved themselves 15 billion quid and a lot of bother by this deal not going through. In the yeah, end. well, it's worth pointing out with this deal that the drop in share price that Zoom suffered immediately after the deal was announced obviously affected the value of this deal for 5.9 shareholders. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Well, it was already at a pretty low premium. I think a lot of the five nine shareholders were already questioning the deal. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of the times management kind of looks at all stock deals and maybe just maybe they're thinking about their own interests a little bit ahead of the shareholders. You know, we don't get premium. We don't get a premium, but we'll be part of Zoom, and that's one of the most exciting businesses out there. Whereas shareholders are a bit like. If I wanted Zoom shares at basically the market rate, I would have bought Zoom shares at the market rate. Yeah. So the drop in Zoom share price certainly didn't help matters. Like I said, it wasn't particularly looking like a very sweet deal. You know, shave 20% off it again. No one's really going to be jumping for joy at that deal. Yeah. Another point to, to another thing to point out, sorry, is that prior to the deal being scrapped, there were reports floating around that um, the deal was actually being investigated by the US government for potential national security reasons, considering that Five9 has operations in Russia and Zoom has an R&D hub in China. Do you think that had anything to do with the deal falling through? Um, it did. I don't know if it had a direct uh, link to it uh, falling through. I think there was, I mean, there was already a sense that the deal wasn't like many fires. We've already discussed. The investigation, I think, wasn't probably going to prevent the deal uh, in the end. It probably would have just delayed matters. But what it did do is it gave all the parties a kind of chance to end it and kind of save a bit of face. Now, unfortunately for Zoom, this could end up being an ongoing kind of issue for them. It's one of the kind of rarely talked about bear arguments against Zoom that it's got this link to China and that it does a huge amount of its R&D in China. And, you know, like all companies operating in China, it has to follow Chinese law. One of which yeah. is that if the Chinese government wants something, you give it to them. And uh, that doesn't really go down quite well when you're talking about communication systems within the US, Chinese government interference. It's not a match made in heaven, bit of a kind of water and oil thing going on there. So it, this might be, you know, Zoom has grown an awful lot since their early days. It, this might be kind of a time for them to start rethinking that strategy because I can see it getting in the way of more deals down the line. So, so you think you think there's going to be more pain for Zoom around around this kind of location of the R and D hub? Um, I think it could definitely. In terms, I mean, like we know the Biden administration first of all has already come out and said that it is going to be much going to be much more wary of these kind of big multi-billion uh, blockbuster deals so that's all that was already an issue like i don't particularly know how much the security issue was was at the heart of this it might have just been this is a big deal we're going to look at it you know don't be pop champagne corks just yet but i do think you know just because of the space that zoom operates in if it wasn't in this communication space which we've already had you know, we've already have a history with with Huawei, yeah. Ericsson, all all this kind of five G stuff going on. I do think they are going to keep an eye on what is going on with Zoom when it comes to 
big acquisitions related to communications. Yeah. So what, what's next on the horizon for Zoom, do you think? It's been a pretty bad year for them so far. The stock's down well over 50% from its all-time highs around this time last year. So what, what does Zoom need to do next to restore confidence, do you think? I don't particularly know if it's something that they need to do. I mean, this particular episode was a rare misstep by management and a management that has been executing fantastically since they became a public company and um, one of the fastest scaling businesses we've ever seen on the public markets during what was a very tumultuous yeah. time they probably aren't the most savvy pr people in the world uh, they haven't really got that whole uh you know for a communications company they should be able to go out better and at communication sell themselves a little better <laughs> yeah better, better communicate a little bit better but you know we're already seeing the, I think an awful lot of the drop, first of all, was just a kind of correction from the insane 2020 that it had. You know, when, when shares were up there at 550, 560, you know, you were going, wow, is this thing ever going to stop going up? But now that they're back down, like you said, 50% of all-time highs, there's this kind of, I think, worry, fear that we were all going back to the office now, no one needs Zoom anymore. But like I said, that's not really Zoom's long-term plan. It's They're getting much more into the wiring behind the communications that we're that, that we need to you know even if we are not working remotely we still need these types of communications and we've seen with the zoom phone which only launched a couple of years ago is already seen huge success so i think they are still executing very yeah. well i don't think there's one particular thing that they need to do to kind of you know make this company great again it's still a brilliant company it's still doing very well and still think it's going to deliver for shareholders over the long term before we finish this i have to ask Corey, how long have you been waiting to drop the word sisfian on the stock club podcast how long have we been doing the stock club podcast (laughs) never never mind that it was in the same sentence as the word zeitgeist as well yeah Yeah, a bit of a a tongue twister (laughs) taking the piss Okay, let's move on before before any more big words are dropped. Uh, so what's going on in the My Wall Street app, app at the minute? Well, we added our brand new Stock of the Month report this week. This is a company that I'm a, personally a massive fan of. It's just one of those businesses that you either you or someone you know is a customer of. Of course, you can listen into the exclusive Stock of the Month podcast as well to hear Rory and I discuss this stock in more detail. Um, we just recorded that earlier today and it's going live on Monday. So make sure to check that out. Rory, what is the sexy ratio of this stock? Um, well, we're on the platform, so it's way to up what? There. Race sexy to what? Uh, <laughs> to EV sales, come on, James. <laughs> to forward revenue. Forward revenue. <laughs> okay, we're losing Rory, so I'll move on. Uh, so don't forget as well that Emmett is said to appear on a different podcast in a few weeks' time with our friends over at Opto Sessions. On Opto Sessions, co-host Hayden Brain and Ed Gotham interviewed the top traders and investors from around the world in a bid to uncover the secrets to their successes. Emmett is going to be chatting about his journey so far as an investor, including the reasons why he set up My Wall Street, the details of his investing philosophy, and some of the companies he's looking at at the moment. That episode is going live next Thursday, October 14th. So to listen in, you can just search for Opto Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to Mailbag, guys. And this week, we're going to talk about a company that IPO'd on the NASDAQ last week, and we've had so many questions in about it particularly on tiktok which i think could be part of the story rory i've never heard of olaplex before but a hair care company valued at 15 billion dollars seems a bit mad to me what are your first thoughts when i well when i first looked at it last week i would have agreed with you valuation wise it did look uh, a little outrageous not because it was valued 
at 15 billion dollars per se and there's a lot of money in beauty and hair care in particular and when i say valuation wise i'm really talking only on multiples here you know it was a, it was a quick kind of scan of the business and, and and where they were sitting on a kind of price to earnings price to sales metric but you know we aren't talking here about a, we're talking here about a business that makes physical products yeah. and not some sort of high growth recurring revenue SaaS business and it's trading at 35 times sales which is you know is high yeah. it was <laughs> very high it was uh, um, slightly higher on your first calculation Rory no yeah my first calculation I didn't carry the one don't we need to only talk about it, Mike um, however <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to admit that the more I read about this business the more interesting it has become to me firstly because it is unlike any beauty business I've ever looked at not that I actually look at many of them it's a kind of it's an industry I'm not particularly okay with but it runs it they actually run it kind of like a technology company they have over 100 patents uh, for one but they are a hair care company what they make is hair care products both for use at the salon and um, use at home and straight in 2014 they created their own category of hair care products which uses bond multiplying technology. Uh, so don't ask me what that is, but apparently it fixes hair and people really like yeah. it. Um, it's, it's okay, let's talk about the good stuff first. Sales are through the roof. It had 90% net sales growth from 2019 to, to 2020. In the first six months of this year, sales were up 171%. Now, obviously there was a bit of kind of COVID disruption tied into that. So the retail stores were closed, there weren't salons, et cetera. But this is a hair care company that generates very, very healthy margins, 82% adjusted gross margins. Again, a company that makes physical products wow. and 71% adjusted EBITDA margins. Now, if you were to look at other beauty businesses, your kind of Estee Lauders, your Elf Beauties, they're generating like 20 to 25% EBITDA margins. So how are Olaplex getting such high margins? Well, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, they are... It's all a, it's all a fraud. They're putting the <laughs> Sham and shampoo. <laughs> they are they are the number one brand in their category. They have a 71 NPS, which is the highest NPS score in their category. They're the number one hair care brand at Sephora. They have the number one follower account on Instagram, and they are the number one two hair or number two, missed this last one, uh, hair care brand on Amazon. Uh, on top of that, pretty much every female I've asked to talk about this has kind of Talk, talks about it like it's kind of some sort of gift from the hair gods and it's one of those companies that has a great founder story a guy called dean crystal whose mother was a who owned a salon his father worked in the business he uh, invented it for want of a better word or came up with this bond multiplying system uh, back in 2014 unfortunately he's not with the business anymore he sold that business to a private equity company called advent they on the on the on on the positive side, they seem to have installed a wonderful CEO in Ju E. Wong, um, female leaders. We always like to see that. Uh, she has just buckets of experience in the consumer goods and beauty in particular. She was director of PepsiCo. She was president of Elizabeth Arden. She was a CEO of Astral. So, I mean, I don't, I've actually never encountered her before, but I mean, superstar resume there. But here's something we don't particularly like to see, uh, which is, first of all, that Advent Controls all the voting power in the business. So it is a controlled company. And that's something that you can see in other businesses, particularly kind of like family-owned businesses of, you know, um, Brown Foreman is a good example where yeah. the, the family collectively owns all the voting shares. But because they've been around for so long, you kind of trust them with the business. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. that's their their It's an, it's their an institution. Yeah, it's kind of an institution. The New York Times, another business famously owned by 
uh, by the family. And here's another thing that is a bit worrying. Uh, 70% of their net revenue is tied to one supplier. So that's another kind of big worry in thinking yeah. about kind of supply chain and the disruptions that we've had over just even the past couple of months. Um, now, the, the CEO was asked that on several interviews that they did while the IPO was happening. She claims that they have very good relationships with their suppliers. They keep very close control over the raw materials, et cetera, et cetera, the exact kind of thing you'd expect her to say. But yeah, the incredibly interesting business with way, way too many questions to be answered before I'd be happy making an investment, particularly uh, this this margin business is like, you know, it's 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 kind of if it's too good to be true maybe it is just, maybe it isn't true um, <laughs> uh, not to accuse them of massive fraud or anything but i definitely would like to dig in a bit deeper and find out where they're getting that kind of that kind of margin is it just pricing power because if it is it could be a very interesting business to invest in yeah i think i, I think you can never underestimate these kind of like cult following companies like peloton people laughed at peloton they thought it was an expensive stationary bike and now look at it like you know yeah Look at us a, now. It was a stationary bike with an iPad attached. Someone yeah. said to me. Well, yeah. Speaking of that cult thing, apparently Olaplex is very, very popular on the TikTok kind of subsection of hair talk, Mike, which I know you're you're a big fan of. So, um, yeah, I'll get 100%. you <laughs> with your with your luscious locks. Uh, so let's move on from Olaplex then and go to the elevator pitches. So that might have seemed like an elevator pitch, but I want two more elevator pitches from you guys today. Mike, I'll let you go first, seeing as Rory's been talking for so long. Um, <laughs> what stock are you pitching me? All right, I'm going to frame this first with two stats. So the first one is that infertility affects one in eight couples, making it a more prevalent condition than diabetes, asthma, or depression. And 68% of the workforce is willing to change jobs for fertility coverage. Of those already facing challenges, 90% are willing to change jobs for fertility coverage. So maybe that's three stats. (laughs) (laughs) So the company I'm pitching is called Progeny. It's a benefits manager. It focuses on fertility services and partners with organizations to design benefits plans, member support, and kind of manage all their networks attached to benefits, basically. Yeah. So a common issue with like kind of the current fertility benefit schemes is that plans like have an upper limit. So you would go through maybe multiple rounds of IVF and then the plan can max out, meaning that you have to pay for the rest of it out of your own pocket. Progeny differentiates itself by offering bundles or what it calls smart cycles as an alternative. So they're custom tailored and fully covered by Progeny, preventing exhaustion of the upper coverage limits. Customer base is made up of a list of some of the biggest companies in the world, including Microsoft, Google, and PayPal. And yeah, I think it's like, it's going to be a big factor in the coming years over recruitment and retention. So I could see a lot of the big companies following suit. Yeah, that that's a fascinating company. I actually didn't expect you to pull out a good one, Mike. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the faith. Yeah. What is that? That is such a joke. <laughs> <laughs> this, pod, this podcast is a bit loose, I feel. Rory, give me your elevator pitch before I have to, I have to shut us down. Um, yeah, I mean, so the background to this is there's just been an awful lot of IPOs recently, particularly an awful lot of consumer-facing IPOs. We just talked about yeah. Olaplex. Warby Parker, Allbirds, there's a couple of other that I can't even remember. But one that has been exciting me and I'm taking a deep look into is Weber. Weber is the market leader in outdoor grilling appliances. Their range of products include charcoal, gas, pellet, electric grills, etc., etc., and accessories, little flipping things too, you know, spatulas and all that. <laughs> and the company was found, what I like is that the company was founded over 70 years ago. And so companies like that, you just get to see some very nice 
historical revenue and it's just been growing, 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 growing pretty steadily for the last 70 years. The one thing I do like about Weber as compared to their biggest competitor, which is Traeger, which also went public pretty much on the same week, is if you type in best barbecue onto Google, check any review site, you can check all of them if you want, 99.999% of the time, it'll be a Weber, will be in, in pretty much every category. I think there's one category where they're they're a little bit weak, I think it's the pellet uh, barbecues. But yeah, really kind of steady, growing business, loyal customers, 50 million install base around the world and great net promoter score and seems to be a good leadership team as well. I'm interested, Rory. What's the thesis around pitching a barbecue company as we go into winter? <laughs> <laughs> it's a long-term investment. It's also, it's also not winter on the south side of the planet. Okay, side fair. of the planet. <laughs> south also side also planet. known as the Southern Hemisphere for uh, anyone who <laughs> yes. might not get the south side yes. of the planet. Where I used to live, <laughs> Australia. If, if anyone, barbecue a lot if anyone needs any justification of Rory being from Dublin, he says the south side <laughs> of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Does the Green Lewis go there? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, that's, that's it for today's Stock Club. Um, remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.